God's plan for a healthy church is our message title. We are in the books of First and Second Corinthians. First Corinthians now, chapter thirteen. Conduct in the church. If you're new with us this morning, we're in the middle of a section of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth that deals with conduct in the church, specifically Paul's instructions to the church on spiritual gifts. And we've spent several weeks. Now, studying this passage, attempting to gain an understanding of God's personal explanation of love. It identifies love in action. It's a very enriching chapter, a very humbling chapter, really stark. Um, strips away a lot of things I think that we hold on to. I'm, I'm enjoying going through it. Uh, it is very uh, encouraging, cathartic, and, and uh, really uh, convicting to me. I hope it is to you, too. As we saw last week, we're really trying to capture... Uh, as we have as human culture, we've tried to capture in love song and in writing and poem uh, the, uh, the essence of love. Many, every era has had its writer, has had its love song, has had its poem. I gave you um, Billboard's top 50, uh, just an excerpt of Billboard's top 50 love songs of all time, last time. Most of them we saw focused on emotion or, or the, the, uh, some type of fixture, uh, an ideal, if you will. Listen, if you would, to Shakespeare's attempt in Sonnet 116, I think that you'll find perhaps he captures a little closer to the essence of what the scripture has to say. He says this, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when in alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it's an ever fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It's the star to every wandering bark whose worth is unknown although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within its bending sickles come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ nor any man ever loved. He does a pretty good job, I think, of, albeit in his mind, he's probably describing his ideal of love, placing some fixed mark where love is, is found. Nobody reaches it, of course. But last week we worked through the first three chapters, uh, through verses of chapter 13, very sobering, uh, a filter, if you will, really pulling away everything that uh, might seem important in the church and revealing the underlying requirement for all the things that are to go on, all the gifts that are to go on, all the work that's to go on. It's not just labor, we saw last time. It's not just how hard you work. You might be able to accomplish a lot of things in the church, you may be able to establish some policies and get things rolling, but really if it comes down to it and you're not doing it in love, it's nothing, it amounts to nothing, you are nothing, we saw that. And there's really no illustrations needed in the first three verses of chapter 13. Uh, we could just read the verses, and so uh, Paul starts off an instruction in verse one with this amazing statement. He really asks, you know, do you think you're eloquent? Uh, do you think you're great because you can speak one of the languages of men that you didn't know before? So verse one says this, look with me in your copy of God's word. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, he says, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And then he ties it back to the most excellent way. It's chapter 12, verse 31. That's the transition into verse, uh, chapter 13. And this is the way everything must be done in the church for it to matter. So if you have all that spirit given ability, but you don't minister it in self, a self-sacrificing way for the common good, that is really the essence of what love does, because love is a verb, and we see it in that verb described in action all through these, this chapter. If, if you have all that spirit given ability, and you don't minister it in a self-sacrificing way for the common good, you really can do nothing. The best speech on earth or on heaven without love is only noise. And so Paul says, then ask yourself this question. 
Are you really important to the church? Do you have gifts that can really bring real benefit? Look at verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries, not just some mysteries, if I know all mysteries, if I know, and if I have all knowledge, not just some knowledge, if I have all faith, so Paul's speaking in supportive form here, just taking in the best possible combination of gifts, the best possible combination of deliveries, the best possible combination of gifts that are beneficial to the church and have benefited the church over time. If I have the gift of prophecy, I know all mysteries, all knowledge. I have all faith, not just the saving faith, not just uh, faith to do this or that, but all faith at, at the maximum level so as to remove mountains and do not have love, I am nothing. So you can do nothing if you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels and don't have love, you're just noise. And you are nothing if you have the gift of prophecy, all mysteries, all knowledge are yours. If you have all faith to remove mountains but you don't have love, you are nothing. And he ties that back to the most excellent way again, chapter 12, verse 13, 31. The way everything has to be done in the church for it to matter, if you have all the spirit-given ability, and these are gifts that have been and have continued to be important to the church, but you don't minister them in a self-sacrificing way for the common good, you are nothing. So these wonderful gifts, in their fullest possible amount, used only for your own benefit, or to make you look good, or to make people think good of you, whatever it is, you can use your gifts for a whole bunch of different ways, for the evaluation of men, or whatever, or, or you makes you feel better, or because somebody pressured you into doing it, and you're doing it, and they're not being done in a self-sacrificing way for the edifying of other members of the body of Christ because that's how spiritual gifts are to work. Not only are they not very important, they are of, according to Paul, no value. In other words, the holder is nothing. That is, he is of no help to anyone. Then ask yourself this question again, because love is personified and you're the person of love, okay? Paul says, if I am, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, that's verse 3, but do not have love, then it profits me nothing. So just imagine it then, beloved. If in one comprehensive move, you could sell all that you have and give it away to benefit the less fortunate, whatever that may be, whoever that might be, okay? In one moment, you could pay the ultimate sacrifice of your life for whatever cause there may be to give it. Not just a living sacrifice, but martyrdom. You give yourself away and you give your life away. And then he ties it back again to the most excellent way, the way everything has to be done in the church for it to matter. And Paul's saying that it's possible then for you to give your material wealth and give up your body to martyrdom and make this spectacular sacrifice without love. And all three verses are implying that it's possible to do all of these things in the church and be absent the most important characteristic in your life, which is love. And we can see that it just kind of strips away all of this pretense, doesn't it? Paul's saying it's possible to give your material wealth, give up your body to martyrdom, to make your spectacular sacrifice, and if you do it apart from love, you will have nothing to show for your generosity. So you can do nothing, you are nothing, and you have nothing to show. These wonderful gifts in the fullest possible amount, used only for your own benefit, switch to this mic right here, Jay, to make you look good or to make people think good of you. Uh, you may be moved by dedication, uh, some high ideal, or by pride, or by asceticism, or whatever the motivation may be. You can have all these things going, see? But if, it, if the things are not done for the edification of other members of the body of Christ, not only are they not very important, they are of no value, and the giver gets no credit. 
So this is the way things are done. So Paul just kind of sets up this ideal, strips away all this pretense, whatever might be going on in the church, whoever might look like they're really important, whoever might have important jobs, whoever might do something that looks pretty significant, whatever it is. So you can just kind of take everybody and put them in because it's in the most greatest possible way that it can be done. The highest gifts, the most noteworthy business in the church, the most important activities, they're worth nothing if love is absent. That's where he wants us to start. Just get it out of your mind what you can do. And remember that the most important attribute is this attribute of love, which is action. And we're going to see this very clearly in the next several verses. And no matter where you stop in Scripture, this is the same story. And we looked at a lot of cross-referencing then over the last couple of weeks. So you know those things and you can check online in the archives and, and catch up if you've not been with us. Everywhere in Scripture, same story, same process. We have to do the work of God in God's way. When we're talking about love, that's what we're talking about. Love is an act of humility. It says, I want to meet your need. It's all about motivation, isn't it? An attitude. I want to meet your need. I want to do what God wants me to do. But you have to do it God's way. See, it's not just what's the least you'll accept, Lord, or I'm doing this. This is worth something, right? And I, I think Paul in the first three verses just says, no, it's not if it doesn't have the love attribute. There's no self-seeking here. There's no pride. There's no selfishness. There's no self-glory. There's no vanity here, see? And remember, we, when we talked about this, we ended this last week. It's pretty important because you can think of that and just think, how could I possibly get to the point where everything I'm doing is motivated by love, see? Well, one thing you won't be able to do is whip it out of your hat, okay? You're not going to be able to turn around, you know, in an instant. You can't, you know, can't be, you know, self-centered and prideful and caustic and backbiting and, and gossipy and all of that stuff. And then you go home and you read your inspirational calendar one day and just decide, okay, now I'm going to love and everything I'm going to do is going to be out of love. It doesn't work like that, see? Paul says in Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Remember when we studied that? Abhor what's evil, do, cling to what's good. If you're going to love with sincerity, then it's going to take precedence over everything else, see? And as we finished last week, in doing it, see, not whipping it out of your hat, but if you want this to be the motivation, you're going to have to walk in the Spirit. And according to Colossians 3.16, that means letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I, I read that verse to you all the time. It's one of my favorite verses. It is what it means to be controlled by the Spirit. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be not drunk with wine where is excess, but be filled with the... And if you look at both those verses, Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16, you look at the, what it looks like to do that, you'll see both of them are identical. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has carried the writers along to give you the mind of Christ so that you could become that type of person, see? Letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, that means you spend regular quality time in the Word of God, and it will lead you to committing passages to memory in places where you're having trouble. It'll lead you then to begin to allow the Spirit of God to govern your thought patterns. See, that's the whole idea of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed, how, beloved? By the renewing of your mind. How is your mind renewed? Colossians 3, 16. Ephesians 5, 18. Being controlled by the Spirit of God. See, walking in the Spirit. That's the essence of turning control of your life over to the Spirit of God. As the Spirit of God begins to control you then, he produces the fruit of that control, and the very first fruit is, what's the first fruit of the Spirit, beloved? Love. That's the very first one, see? And love will only come that way. It's not going to come because you just decide in some self-righteous act 
that, okay, now I'm going to love. I, I've been self-centered. I agree. I, I've been caustic, backbiting. I've caused some trouble. I've, I've had bad attitudes towards people. But today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch it around. It, it's not going to work that way because you've been operating in the flesh. And the first three verses of chapter 13 say it's possible for you to appear spiritual by using what appear to be spiritual gifts in the flesh, and you're accomplishing nothing, you are nothing, and it means nothing. So this is a volitional response in that you must yield your life to the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, control me today. Take over my life. Live through me based on my time in your word. Change my thought processes so that I am motivated to do things in love see, and joy and peace and gentleness and long-suffering. We're going to see some of those today. And then the fruit of love will be there to be applied in your service to others. That's how, that's the only way it's going to work, see. So Paul strips away all this pretense and says, listen, no matter what you've accomplished or what you can accomplish or how important it may look, what you do, remember that if love's absent, it's nothing, you're nothing, it accomplishes nothing. Come back to the basics. The basics are going to be based in you're walking in control of the Holy Spirit, and that only is going to be accomplished by you spending quality time in the Word of God and memorizing passages of the Word of God that apply to your life, and you begin to change that thought process. You're not conformed to the world, but you're transformed by that renewing of your mind. And just the, the word is so clear that it just connects all over the place. And in the same way, it's not some mysterious process to be wa walking in control of the Spirit. It requires an input of the Word of God. And as you compare your life to the Holy Standard, and you're able to worship the Lord and what He's accomplished, and you're able to see the things that you need to do, and you're praying constantly as you're reading the Word, Lord, help me to do that today. I'm not doing that very well. Lord, thank you for accomplishing that in my life and in the world and doing what you did and, and how that uh, made a way for me and all the things that we did and we said today while we were worshiping. That all becomes part of your praise and your confession and your repentance, and that's this washing that goes on through the Word. It begins to change our thought processes and we begin to do things in a motivation of love. And then Paul's going to show us what it looks like to do things motivated by love. See, Now Paul has shown that even the highest gifts are worth nothing if love's absent. Now, now he looks at the situation where love is present. So look, if you would, then to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, or verse 4, rather. Look at verse 4 and we'll go from there. Paul says this, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Verse 5, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Verse 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you want to look at what love looks like when it's present in your life, this is what it looks like. So that's Paul's second emphasis. He's already shown you what it looks like if it's absent. It's nothing, you're nothing, and accomplishes nothing. Now he wants to show you what it looks like when it's present. Self-sacrificing love is the subject of a number of verbs. And let's start with the first two affirmations. There's two here that are really the core. Now, beloved, as I go through, just kind of as a pause, put that on pause. As I go through this, remember, and I remind you this from time to time, but my desire is not for you to come here and feast on the Word of God, and this be your only meal in the whole week, okay? My desire really is for you to be in the Word of God every day, and I think I made that clear just earlier. That's the way you're going to be able to function correctly in the church. And we provide a, a Bible reading calendar out there, a trifold that you can take and be in the Word every single day, and I encourage you to do that. But I want you to feed yourself, and then when we come, we do this together, what we've been doing all through the week. That's, that's, the, that's the, our goal. That's what we want to accomplish. So I don't know how you connect with that and how you're hooking up with that and how you don't know how I'm hooking up with that, but that's what we want to do as a church. That's the way our minds are going to be the same. 
and we'll have unity and understand what the Holy Spirit wants us to do and begin to function in that way. So let me encourage you then to be in the Word, okay? And then, uh, you know, as you're in the Word each week, you're going to come here not starving, but ready to, uh, to share, to fellowship, and to encourage, and to affirm, and all those kinds of things. You're ready to be taught and not at the point where you just have to gorge yourself in order to even feel partially satisfied, but you're like, okay, let's get back into the Word today, just like we did this week, okay? So as I read this, I pray this is not the first time you've been in the Word this week, but be in the Word every single day, all right? Now, self-sacrificing love is the subject of a number of verbs, and we're going to look at these first two affirmations. Look at them. Love is patient, he says. Uh, love is kind. All right, patient, makrothumeo, that's the Greek verb. Let's get a little background. We won't do this for every verb because it would take a long time, and I think that it might just kind of bog down the whole study. This verb is present, active, indicative. And I give you this from time to time just so that you can get a handle on some of this. When I say present, that's the tense. Active, that's the voice. Indicative, that's the mood. Now, that's the most common type of phrase that we find in the Bible that's a command. 20,697 times in the New Testament. The next closest is 3,000. Okay, so this is, when you hear a command from the Lord, usually is in this form, okay? So that you can understand, this is, this is the form of reality. This is what's to be the reality of the believer. So if you imagine yourself then in this passage as you ask the question, if I'm going to be useful for the kingdom, what will be the evidence of this fruit of the Spirit in my life? And then it's present, active, indicative. Present tense means it's a continuous, habitual action. It reflects a lifestyle. This is what it's supposed to look like. This is what it's to look like in your life. It's not the ideal. This is like what we'd like to reach to. This is the reality of your life as a believer. This is where you're supposed to be. Active just represents the action is being accomplished by the subject of the verb, okay? And then indicative, the action really occurs, has occurred, or will occur. This is the actual ongoing thing that's going on in your life. Love is presented as the subject. It's indicated as a person, and you're that person, okay? So you're going to act. God's commands are for us then, not for him. So when you read that, see, love is patient. Lord, just make me patient. But there's an active involvement of your volition and saying, okay, in this active voice, this attitude is going to be present in my life. Love is presented as that subject, and, and it's indicated as a person. You're the person. God's commands are for us because the Holy Spirit is present in your life. This action is the reality. And, and patience has to do with an overall attitude, a character trait that marks your life. We're going to see a great illustration here in a minute from the Lord and how that's supposed to work its way out. You're saying, well, sometimes it's easy to be patient and sometimes not so much, okay? But we're going to see how the Lord is patient with us and even patient with men who, who, who uh, are his enemies. But macrothumeo, it's bearing long, suffering long, to persevere patiently, bravely enduring misfortunes and troubles. And I'm just going to give you kind of a just a general rounded out uh, um, some information here to help you understand a definition. To be patient in bearing the offenses of injuries of others. So situational patience, things are difficult in your life right now. You have financial trouble, you have health trouble, whatever it may be. You're patient in that. Patient attitude towards people. So it has to do with people. It's very, uh, very broad scope. To be, and then from the other side, to be mild and slow in avenging. So if you're patient, you're very mild towards avenging wrongs on you or people who are wrong. To be long-suffering, slow to anger, slow to punish. That is patience. Love is patient. Love is kind. The Greek verb krasteyumi. This is a, it's interesting. This is the only place in the New Testament where this is found. And a lot of writers think that perhaps Paul coined this phrase. The verb is present, middle indicative. 
It's, um, again, present, continuous action, habitual action, reflects a lifestyle. The middle voice, just the subject initiates acts of kindness and goodness. Whereas the first one was an attitude, so it is the reality of your life, patience. Here you're initiating acts of kindness and goodness. And the indicative mood, this actually is the action that really occurs. This is the reality of your life. Continually initiating acts of kindness or goodness. Again, love is presented as a subject. It indicates a person, and you're that person. And then we see what it looks like. It's kind. And God's commands are for us and not for him. And because the Holy Spirit is present in your life, the action is the reality of your life. And, and kind of, uh, it has to do with regularly occurring actions that you do. It's the reality of your day or your week or regularly occurring deeds in your life. Deeds that are good in the sense of what is upright and righteous. Deeds that are, are beneficial to someone. Deeds that meet the needs of others. Deeds that bless others. This is the idea of love being patient, doing, doing acts of patience, which this is the attitude that's in your own heart, and, lo and love that is doing acts of kindness, which is a regular occurring act, deeds that are good, deeds that are upright, deeds that are beneficial, deeds that meet the needs and bless other people. This is what love looks like. You want to know if you're functioning in love? Well, are these two things present in your life? Because if they are, then you're functioning in love. And now we know from 1 John 4.10, We've read this a few times, but I want to, I want to use this and kind of to make a transition into this next section that gives us a great illustration. John, 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. Jesus was a satisfaction for our sins. This really sets us up for an illustration of love in action. Those that have confessed and believed have been reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of his son. And that was no marginal task, beloved. And there's a great illustration from Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. And Paul is addressing outwardly moral people. And here's what he says to them. He says, do you think lightly of the riches of, here it is, his kindness and tolerance and patience? Now, all three of those are listed in the passages we're going to study, Okay. We've already looked at kindness and patience, so it's appropriate. We'll see tolerance in just a little bit. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And there's a lot in this verse that's so important. We won't go into all of that because it uses some of the same words we're going to just look at uh, to help kind of shore up our understanding of what it looks like to be kind and patient in real world. So verse 4 says that God's been kind to you, every one of you around the world. And through his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, which are also attributes of love from our passage of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, he's drawing men to repentance. But if you look around, men are heading to judgment, aren't they? I mean, if you look around, God has shown kindness and tolerance and patience. But if you look around, people are heading still to judgment. Men are piling up this huge pile of guilt, or really a storehouse of guilt that's waiting for them in judgment. That's the implication of the verse. Men are not thankful. They're not deserving recipients of the actions of love that God is expressing here, are they? That's the point. They are heading to judgment, but God has been kind and tolerant and patient because he wishes uh, them to come to repentance. So men are not thankful. They're not deserving re recipients. So that gives us an idea that if we're functioning in love, it may be towards people who are not thankful. Uh, they might not be, in your estimation, deserving recipients of your kindness or your patience. It's irrelevant. Because the actions of love are modeled here by the Lord, and we'll see it modeled by Christ as well, okay? So, 
There's a guilt, a guilt for all sins, a guilt for the worst sin, of course, rejecting what God has done. Men are guilty of that. They're rejecting God's kindness. They abuse God's mercy. They ignore God's grace. They spurn God's love. They mock God's kindness. Matthew Henry, a real commentator of old, very helpful in his thoughts on Scripture, said there's an, in every, gets to catch this, in every willful sin, there is a contempt for the goodness of God. Did you, you, get, you catch that? I think that's exactly right. In every willful sin, there's a contempt for the goodness of God. Whenever I sin, wherever you sin, we show a contempt for the kindness of God and the patience of God and the tolerance of God. And so Romans 2.4 says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? It just means to despise or grossly underestimate the value of something, a failure to assess a true worth. And it's really a sad observation. God gives these actions of love and people despise them and people fail to understand how valuable God's riches are. And that word rich is just simply the wealth of God, which he shares with all men in these forms of love expressed in him. Okay? So catch this. Every person alive in the world today has personally experienced the riches of God. And they experience them in every breath they take. God gives them rain. He gives them food to eat, a fire to keep them warm, water to refresh their thirst, a blue sky, a warm sun, green grass, beautiful mountains, people to love, friends to have. You just keep naming it. Okay? And then God gives these three actions of love, kindness, tolerance, and patience, and people think lightly of them, but they experience them every day. And the word kindness is in noun form, Christotes. Of course, it's speaking of God's attributes, but it's referring to the actions of the kind of a believer who can be effective in the kingdom, a kindness, an acts of kindness on a regular basis in the life. That's the action of the redeemed. This is what you're to manifest as a daily habitual action. This is what love looks like. This is love in action, kindness. Kindness in expressing itself in deeds, in a sense of what's upright and what's righteous and what's beneficial to someone on a regular basis. This is the reality of the believer's life. This is the one who can be effective for the kingdom. This is the most excellent way from 1 Corinthians 12, 31. See? And obviously by this example here in Romans 2, we see it harmonizes perfectly with our passage. We do this, then, acts of kindness, even to people who don't like us, people who don't apparently appreciate us, because that's God's example to us, see? Unthankful people, ungrateful people, we still express acts of kindness. That's what it's going to look like. Not acts of kindness to people who are kind to you, necessarily, but acts of kindness to people who don't necessarily like you, or don't agree with you, or you don't get along with that well, or you're not friends with, or whatever. That's what it looks like, see? And then the word tolerance... And okay, that's holding back. That's the idea. For some reason, we're not advancing here, Jay. If you could get us, or, or Alex, if you could advance us. <clears throat> That'd be slide nine. That's holding back the idea of God's withholding punishment. It represents a suspense of wrath, which must eventually be exercised unless the sinner accepts God's condition. So there's a tolerance there, see? And there's a kindness there. Paul uses this word in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says this, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, here it is, showing what? Tolerance for one another. And what's the last two words? That's precisely what the Lord does for you. It is precisely what's implied by Paul as we get into 1 Corinthians 13 a little deeper. That's an attribute of love, tolerance. 
The same way then that God draws men to repentance and love is the same way we're supposed to act in love and it's connected to not being easily provoked, which we just saw a minute ago, didn't we? And bearing long, which we see in our passage. And then we get our next parallel word for our passage, God has patience. Macrothermia in the noun form. Bear long, suffer long, preserve patiently, bravely endure misfortune and troubles and situations. And then it applies to people. And this, of course, is how the Lord is using it here in Romans chapter 2. Being patient and bearing the offenses and the injuries and the rejection. And then running to judgment instead of running to repentance. And to be mild and slow in avenging. And to be long-suffering and slow in anger and slow to punish. You can see that's exactly the Lord's attributes expressed to us to draw us to repentance. That's how it's supposed to be expressed in our own life. If it means one thing one, in one spot, it's going to mean the same thing in another spot if we're going to cut it correctly. The quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation, that's the idea, which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. It's the opposite of anger. It's associated with mercy. And we should understand from our passions, beloved, patient impa patience impacts so many other things. God's not willing that any should perish. And because he feels that way, he sent his son into the world to be abused and rejected by the men he's spoken to being. And even so, he's patient and tolerant and kind that men will come to repentance. And even though people reject God and they are his enemies, the examples of, God, of love from God to us, love and action, in this is love, not that we love God, that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction. That's our base verse, remember? So what does it look like then when God loves us it looks like this, kindness and tolerance and patience. It's the exact type of attribute that has to be clear in our own life if we're operating correctly inside the church. The kindness of God, which refers to the benefits that God gives, the tolerance of God, which is the judgment he does not give, and the patience of God, which refers to the duration of both of those. So catch it, for long periods of time, God is kind, and long periods of time, God is tolerant. The Hebrew expression for this can be found in Nehemiah 9.17. He says, you are a God of forgiveness, gracious, and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And in Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. God of forgiveness, God of compassion. As well as Joel 2.13, now return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. See, this, this is the riches verse 4 speaks about in Romans chapter 2. It's not just kindness and tolerance and patience. It's kindness and tolerance and patience at their best. That's God's riches of, of, of all those things. And again, this is part of what we call common grace. It falls under the theological term of God's providence. This is how God works with men. In other words, God is good, he pours out his goodness, he withholds his judgment, and he does that for a long period of time. And because this marvelous example is to us, we can plug that into ministry then as the most excellent way. This is the example. What does it look like for love and action? What does it look like that not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sin? What does the love look like? Patience and tolerance and kindness. That's what it looks like. Just a few more because these are so wonderful. Psalm 52, 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Why do you think, in other words, that you're getting away with evil for a long period of time? You're just boasting, well, God hasn't done anything to me, and I dare him to strike me dead like right now. Why do you boast like that? The, the loving kindness of God endures all day long. Listen, he's not provoked because you provoke him. 
He's not willing that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of repentance. And I hope this is opening up, really, kind of your perspective on the way the Lord deals with people. We come from all kinds of backgrounds. If we're from a legalistic background, we're thinking God's a big, you know, he's up there with a big hammer just waiting for you to mess up so you can... That's not how God has set himself up. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sin. And what does that love look like? Kindness and tolerance and patience. Because not willing for any to perish, but all to come to the knowledge of repentance. Psalm 1, 1968. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. In other words, he does acts of goodness or kindness, which is translated interchangeably. Teach me your statutes. Psalm 33, 5. He loved righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. Isn't that a great perspective from the Lord? You want to know what it looks like? You want to know what it looks like to serve in the ministry with love in action? Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. And just a footnote before we move on. And many of you have already jumped here. Most people do not really see God as being good, do they? I mean, most people wonder how God could be uh, so bad as to let certain things happen, right? I mean, if you witness to, about the Lord long enough, you inevitably hear this objection. Here it is. I can't believe a good and loving God, in, a, in a good and loving God that would let so many things that are evil happen and so much evil exist in the world. And every time people say that to you, they think they have you, right? I mean, they think you got you over a barrel. I mean, obviously there's evil in the world, and obviously you know what it is, so how could I possibly believe in a God who's supposed to be kind and good if there's so much evil in the world? And there are many great, reliable arguments that refute that false pretext. But here, as we understand this verse, I believe it's accurate, and I also think it's super, super effective, effective to use this in witnessing, okay? If you, especially if you use the bad news, good news approach. Okay, I realize there's lots of great arguments for the existence of evil in the world. But I would just say if you just use this verse, I think it's accurate and informative to note, and I think it brings people to the point where they can be convicted. The goodness of God, catch this, mark this, is most clearly seen when a man commits a sin and isn't judged on the spot. Okay? I mean, you can take and get kind of caught up with all the evil in the world and think you've got somebody over a barrel, yeah, a Christian over a barrel, because you, know, you can't explain why there could be a good, kind, loving God, and we can't. But I just say, if we're just looking at this verse, I think you could easily say, the goodness of God is most clearly seen when a man commits a sin and isn't judged on the spot. God had every reason at the fall to wipe out the human race. And he has the same reason now. And it's only his kindness and his tolerance and his patience that allow us to take another breath. And not to belabor the point too much, but it's illustrative of what love and action looks like and why it's the imperative ingredient in church ministry because it's how the Lord deals with the world. See. He was patient and good to the people of Noah's time, wasn't he? He waited 120 years before he flooded the world while Noah built an ark and preached repentance. And God was good to Israel, and he was patient to them, wasn't he? And he was so patient with Judah and Israel, he, made it almost, he waited almost 800 years before he took them into captivity. And he's been so patient with the nations. Acts 17.30, what's it say? Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, he just overlooked it. Why? Because he's kind and he's tolerant. And he's both of those for a long period of time. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And he's kind and he's tolerant and he's patient so that they will what? Come to the knowledge of salvation. So they will repent, see? And God forbears and he's kind and he's patient with us today. I mean, just look around you. I mean, the divine law of our wonderful God is trampled underfoot. 
We, we establish laws in our own country which directly violate the ones he said. And people stand up and say, like Hillary Clinton, this is what we should do, even though it directly violates God's law. And she's not struck dead on the spot, see? Because God is kind, and he's tolerant, and he's patient, and he doesn't call us into account right when we say it. And all of us should say, amen, Lord, thank you that you didn't. You know, God himself is openly despised. His name is blasphemed. It's amazing he doesn't strike dead the people who do that. And when you hear someone blaspheme the name of God and take another breath, that's the goodness of God. See, That's the reality. And there's great arguments for the existence of evil. But let's be, let's be honest. The Lord is tolerant and he's kind. And he's both of those things for a long period of time. And when you blaspheme the Lord and you deny him and deny the son that bought our, bought our salvation and he doesn't strike you dead, you are experiencing the goodness of God in that reality right there in your life. Why doesn't he cut you and I down when we sin? like he did to Ananias and Sapphira? Why does the earth open up and swallow us like Dathan and Byram? I mean, we've got some examples of what it looks like to be immediately judged for sin, don't we? I mean, he certainly has the right to do it, but he doesn't. And what about apostate Christendom, liberal religion that endorses every form of evil and, and does things against what the scriptures say to do, and they do it in his name, no less. Why does he let that go on? See? It's because he is kind and tolerant and patient and, and that the kindness of God, that's the good deeds, the acts done on the behalf of men, okay, lead you to repentance. And if you've ever thought, listen, beloved, just kind of take this and, and let this perk a little bit. If you've ever thought for a moment that God is unjust, it just reveals how easy it is to learn to exploit the goodness of God, okay? If you've ever thought for a second that God's unjust, just realize that just proves how easy it is to exploit the goodness of God in your own mind. Luke 6.35 says this, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. This is Jesus talking. Love your enemies. So do acts of kindness, acts of patience, everything that we've already seen, self-sacrificing acts. Just in case you were, you were unclear about who this was supposed to be directed to, maybe just people who like us, maybe just people we get along with, maybe just you know, those who are in our immediate circle of friends or whatever. No. And I think as we look at Romans 2, 4, and as we look at uh, Luke 35, 6, 35, and 36, we can see that that's not the case. Do good, land, that's acts of self-sacrifice. You're doing good on their part. That's love and action. Expect nothing in return. That's an attitude, right? That's a patient attitude, isn't it? A long-suffering, tolerant attitude, isn't it? You don't expect anything in return, even though you probably deserve something in return. You just don't expect it because you're patient. That's present, active, indicative. That's what your life is like. That's the reality of your life. Why? Because you are a believer and this is how you act. And your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. How do we know that? Well, we just looked at it in Romans chapter 2, didn't we? And it's all through the scriptures. God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. God is long-suffering. He is kind. He is merciful even to ungrateful evil men. God is patient, 2 Peter 3, 9 says. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, why hasn't he come back? Why hasn't he started this judgment thing? Why haven't we got busy and said everything right? Why is God slacking? He's not slow about his promise. His promises are going to come true, beloved. But he is what? Here it is again. Patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He does it 
he forbears, he's patient. Why? To draw him into repentance. That's what love looks like. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a satisfaction for our sins. What's love look like? Like this. What's the love look like that we're supposed to do? Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Be merciful because your Father in heaven is merciful and he's kind to ungrateful and evil men. The providence of God extends over everybody. And he's good because he wants to draw people to repentance. That's what love looks like. Patience is the opposite of being short-tempered. Kindness, listen, patience is the opposite of being short-tempered. Try it in your family today, okay? Let's just start right there in your immediate circle. Patience is the opposite of being short-tempered. Kindness is the opposite of petty self-absorption, okay? Just taking care of your needs. You know, that's, our fam that's our famous phrase. Take care of yourself like we're not going to. But it's the opposite of that. See, kindness is the opposite of petty self-absorption, isn't it? Catch this. And because of its place here in Paul's emphasis, because these two characteristics of love and action, kindness and patience, reflect most clearly the way God deals with men, I think we could say love's innermost character is expressed positively in patience and kindness. And I think it would be safe to say, as we look at patience and kindness as the innermost character of love, it just kind of extends as a thread all the way through everything else we're going to read, okay? Patience and kindness in all of these other areas, okay? Now, beginning in the middle of verse 4, all the way through verse 6, Paul lists eight actions love doesn't do, okay? Now, let's look at those, just in the time that we have. And is not jealous. Why? Well, because it's patient and it's kind. And those are the characteristics of love that kind of flow through in a thread. And it doesn't brag. Why? Because it's patient and kind and tolerant. It's kind. And kindness doesn't brag, does it? Because it would make somebody else feel badly. And we're going to look at those words in here in just a minute. And is not arrogant. Jealous is the Greek verb from the Greek verb. Zeluo. It's an earnest desiring for something. In a few places, it's used in a positive way. So there's a good jealous. I'll just look at a few of them and see if the jealousy you may have aligns with this. For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, Paul says, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So I gave you the gospel. You came to faith. You responded to it, and you were growing in that faith. But I'm afraid, Paul says, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So there's a good jealousy. You have this Sunday school class or this uh, somewhere where you teach or you're, you're involved in ministry to someone, you're mentoring some people. There's a good jealousy. What's the jealousy? It's that you're giving them this good instruction and you're jealous that they will go off in a different direction. You don't want that to happen. You're jealous to present them as a pure bride. You want to see that happen. So you're, you're invested in self-sacrifice on their behalf so that they are not moved away from the simplicity of the gospel. So that's a, that's a good jealousy, okay? He, uh, you know, James chapter 4, 4 and 5, James says that God is jealous. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? His jealousy desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. In other words, God is jealous for us to allow the spirit to function in us unquenched. Do you have that jealousy in your own heart? That you can function in such a way that the Holy Spirit is 
magnifying Christ through your life? Are you jealous for that in your life? Because that will lead you to the word. It will lead you to be transformed in your mind. It will lead you to be walking in the ways we've talked about. That's a good jealousy, see? So there's some good examples. Nahum 1, 2 through 3. Uh, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is, an avenging, is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. So we have this long patience and tolerance, but we're not to misinterpret that as slothfulness because the prophet goes on to say, the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He is going to punish those who turn away from him. He is jealous for the worship of men. Why? Because he created you. You were made in your best purpose to honor and glorify Lord, the Lord with your life. And so the Lord is an avenging God. He's jealous because he will require that from everyone, you see. But he's also long-suffering and patient, and he's waiting. And it has some bad connotations there, and the idea here, it means, you know, displeased at the success of others, see. Like in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that's the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. That's the jealousy Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. Romans 13, 13 through 14, Paul says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. It's considered a fleshly lust, strife and jealousy. It's bad, and that's the way Paul's describing it here, except for the, the, the illustrations we gave of good jealousy, uh, jealousy in general is described as bad. First Corinthians three three, here's what Paul said to them early on in this in this letter. Remember this, he says, he says, for you are still fleshly. For since there is what is it, jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? And it looks like this is the key issue Paul's addressing. See, whereas patience and kindness are key actions, really at the core of love's expression. These next eight things that love doesn't do are precisely the things the Corinthian church was doing. See. Paul says love doesn't do this because at its core it's kind and it's patient. But these are the things you are doing. You just kind of see the order in which he's addressing them all throughout the letter. And he just kind of brings it to the forefront. Jealousy looks back at chapter 3 and their factions and later to their mixed feelings about spiritual gifts of other people. They're kind of jealous for somebody who has this one thing or whatever. And so Paul says there's no room in the life of a believer for that behavior. Why? Because it's not compatible with love. If love's there, this won't be there. You can have all the best gifts to the fullest extent, but if your actions are the actions of jealousy, then your work adds up to a big zero. And then Paul just switches it around and he says love does not brag. Perfect, you owe me. Speaking of yourself over and over again. Uh, whereas jealousy desires, and catch this, jealousy desires to have what someone else has. Bragging desires to make someone else desire what you have. And neither of them are compatible with the expression of love in the church. And then it says, and is not arrogant. Is not arrogant. Focio, it's the idea of haughtiness. The literal meaning of the word is blowing up or inflating. Now, the root of the word has to do with natural differences between people, but here it's taking the differences and puffing them up to make them look better. So it's a puffing, a kind of a blowhard, if you will. Love isn't jealous. He doesn't desire what someone else has. Love doesn't brag, try to make someone else desire what you have. And it doesn't puff, on, puff up the stuff that you think is so important about yourself. Paul says these actions are the opposite of love. See? 
James 3.16 says, for where jealousy, catch this, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. And 1 Corinthians 3.3, it says, for you are still fleshly since there's jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly and walking like mere men? And I think it's safe to say this, beloved, whereas patience and kindness are the core of love and action, jealousy and arrogance are the core of fleshliness and every evil thing. So if you want to see a string that runs through every strife, according to James 3.16, and every selfish ambition and every disorder and every evil thing that happens in the church, you're going to find jealousy and you can find selfish ambition, kind of self-centeredness, kind of self-absorbedness, you know, narcissism, if you will, about everything about you, see? And that leads to everything that's bad, and that's the core of everything that's bad, whereas love expressed in kindness and patience is at the core of everything that is true love in the church. So I think it's easy to really... Self-evaluate. That's what I want you to do because that's what I get to do when I'm studying in my office. Okay, where are you in all this stuff, Kurt? Thankfully, the Lord's patient and kind and tolerant and gracious. And so as you evaluate yourself, start, start taking a look. Where are you? When we think about jealousy and bragging and arrogance, everybody struggles with those things at some point, don't they? It's not surprising to us. First John 2.16 for all that is in the world, here it is, just described in different, ver- different words. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, but is from the world. See, The world is composed of jealousy, arrogance, and boasting. They're the big three. So we're not speaking abstractly here, are we? But we see here that love doesn't brag. Love doesn't blow its own horn. But that was a continuing problem in the Corinthian church, wasn't it? Somebody knew more, and somebody wants to do their own thing, and they've got their preferences, and they want them to happen. You know, nobody's following leadership. Everybody just wants to do what they want to do and do their own thing, right? Everybody's grabbing for more attention. Everybody's vying for a loftier position or more time in the front. I mean, you know, look quickly. Just go forward, and we're going to kind of close with this. First Corinthians fourteen twenty-six. Just look forward in your path in your in your Bible, if you would. You know, Paul lays down the guidelines for the priorities of the Spirit, and that's that's that fifth uh, outline point that we're going to look at here in a little bit the guidelines of the priorities of the Spirit. Uh, Paul says, judge for yourself. He says, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm. That's verse 26. Each one has a psalm. Each has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. I mean, what in the world? And so they're coming together, okay? <laughs> they, they meet. Can you imagine? You know, they meet on Sunday morning, and apparently everyone who had the gift of teaching would begin to teach. They just kind of you know, pop up and you know, kind of talk. And, uh, and obviously interrupt each other and make a few points or whatever. I just want to say a few things in, in relation to that or whatever it might be. And then some, you know, and sometimes we have Sunday school classes that are like that, aren't they? And it's just, it's a mess. That's not how it's supposed to be, okay? And so obviously they'd interrupt each other and, and then someone would stand up and start speaking some kind of ecstatic speech. And then somebody over here, they're yelling out the interpretation they think or whatever. And, and then someone stands up and has a revelation and someone has a word of faith to give to you. And then someone wants to make a big showing of some big gift. It sounds like some charismatic churches right now. And, and the unbeliever comes in and he, he just walks in. He says, what in the world is going on in here? Everybody wants attention, everybody wants the floor, everybody with a different idea of what should happen, doing their own thing. The unbeliever would come in and think they were insane, and he would be right. Paul says it doesn't matter if you can speak with every tongue, every tongue, and with the authority of an angel. And it doesn't matter if you know everything there is to know spiritually, theologically, you have this epic faith in God's power. It doesn't matter if you give all your possessions to the offering and you die as a martyr. If you're not acting in patience, and if you're not making a habit of doing kind things, 
even to people who don't deserve it, or if you're jealous, or you're proud, or you're a bragger, all those other stuff mean nothing. It accomplishes nothing, and you are nothing. See, let's just put it right back in and backfill it. And I love, you know, this is really objective. And maybe as we go through, you, you know, you'll probably say with me and a lot of others in the room, sometimes I'm doing well on these things, and other times not so much, right? I mean, let's be real. Like we went through Romans chapter 12, and I just told you, this is a checkup to see if the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. And hopefully you're not going to get an F. I mean, you're going to go through and say, okay, I'm doing okay, okay, I'm doing okay. Uh, I'm not doing that great here, you know, not fervently doing my ministry, you know, taking ownership of it, kind of waiting for people to call me and kind of hanging back. Nobody calls me, I won't do anything, whatever. Just, or fill it in, okay? And hopefully this is, this is a checkup for you too. And remember, it's not an ideal we're shooting for. This is the reality of the life of a believer if he wants to be effective. Consistency is what we're after, see? And consistency will be a cumulative result of the process of sanctification. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we just get right back to the heart of the whole thing. Where's the source? Where's this going to come from? And that just means you spend regular quality time in the word of God, see? And as you do that, you compare your life to the very objective list of the actions of love. This is what love does. Is this present in your life? No, then in that particular instance, you are functioning in the flesh. See? Yes, then you are functioning exactly where the Holy Spirit wants you to be. That's what it's supposed to look like in action in the church. And that will be a, a profitable action, beneficial to other believers, because you're doing it in a self-sacrificing way for the benefit of the common good of the church. And that will lead you to begin to allow the Holy Spirit of God to govern your thought patterns. That is the essence of turning control of your life over to the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God begins to control you and produces the fruit of that control. And the first fruit he produces is the fruit of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. And they begin to be visible in your life. And they begin to impact the other areas of your life. Self-control is a good one, isn't it? And maybe you've got a problem with self-control when nobody's around. You've got a secret sin or whatever. You have a problem getting on the phone and talking to somebody about somebody else. Listen, self-control will begin to control that. You'll begin to see you don't have that urge. And when you begin to think about that, you're thinking, no, that's not what the Lord wants me to do. And you start taking every thought captive. Your mind goes off in a certain way that it's been going on all along. And then you, the Holy Spirit's jumping in there because he's active in your life, because you're functioning in the Spirit. He's saying, no, 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 no. That's not where you want to go. No, I don't want to go there. See? And then love will have at its core characteristics acts of patience and acts of kindness. That's what it's going to look like. And that's the only way consistency is going to come, beloved, when you consistently say, Holy Spirit, I yield myself and my pride and my arrogance and my boasting and my holding on to hurts and everything else we're going to look over in the next several weeks. And I choose in the power of the Spirit to love as Christ has loved me. Because this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a satisfaction for our sin. What's love look like? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is tolerant. And that's what it looks like in the church. Not tolerant of sin. Not tolerant of deviant behavior. Not, none of that, see. But as we serve with one another, see. As we do the things we're supposed to do. We begin to see these things as we are effective in that work. We're going to see these things as the underlying motivations. It's a volitional response, and you must yield your life to the Spirit of God, and the fruit of love will be there to be applied in your service to others. Okay? I know we didn't get far in our lesson today. Uh, particularly, we got far in the lesson, but not far in the chapter. But I think it's important to lay this groundwork and you kind of fill in 
and understanding doctrinally of where we need to be and why that's important and what's the example. It's not just my opinion of how that's supposed to work. You see these examples in the scripture. So I think that was important today and I hope it was beneficial to you. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for just a wonderful opportunity to be together. We're grateful that this is really a small picture of what heaven will be like, just a diverse body. It's worshiping together of one mind, finding a place to serve one another with the, with the underlying motivation of love that looks like uh, certain things that you've described for us in Scripture, certain actions that take precedence as we do the things we do. And it's not optional for us, some kind of ideal that only certain super-Christians uh, meet these qualifications, but this is what it looks like to be a believer. This is present, active, indicative in the life of those who call on the name of Christ for salvation and are called by your name. So, Lord, as we look at ourselves and we examine ourselves very carefully and very objectively, just speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Point out these issues, areas where we've struggled. Lord, help us first in our own families as we deal with our wives and our husbands and our children, those who are closest to us, to operate with these core ideas of patience and kindness. And Lord, as we move into the church ministry, love in action looks like patience and love in action looks like kindness. And it isn't jealous, and it doesn't brag, and it isn't puffed up. So, Father, I pray that you'll do your work here. That we desire to be a body that resembles uh, as a reprint of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, you can make us that way. Draw us to your word this week as we desire to be in it. And perhaps have not made time for it. Help us to set aside some time starting this week where we'll be in your word every day. Feeding on your word, understanding what it says. Uh, what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? Now, how does that apply? And in that process, our minds are renewed. We begin to see victory over things that we haven't had victory over before and consistency in areas where we haven't been consistent. Why? Because your Holy Spirit then is not quenched, but active. And that's the only way we can have success, by not quenching your Spirit, but allowing him to be active through the Word. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. And humbly we ask for these things, because this is your will for us as a church. So we're praying along with your own will for us to be this way. I hope it to be evident today and this week and this year. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.